Welcome to the APL Next Ed Minipod, where for a few minutes each week, academic leaders share insights and perspectives on the most important issues and opportunities facing academic teams. Learn how other schools are managing and strategizing for success as your host, CEO and founder of APL Next Ed, Kathleen Gibson, gathers and connects practical seeds of knowledge and experience from her guests. Well, hello and welcome to the APL Next Ed mini pod. We've been talking for the last few weeks about next generation leadership in academic affairs and in leading in higher education institutions. And this week we are so honored to be joined by two amazing guests from the American Council on Education. So Ted Mitchell, the president of the American Council on Education or ACE is joining us today. Ted comes with a plethora of higher education sector experience doing a lifetime of work as a professor, a dean, a college president, a trustee. Under the Obama administration, he worked as the US Undersecretary of Education and now again, uh, president of ACE, the American Council on Education. Uh, Sherry Hughes is also joining us today, also uh, with the American Council on Education, ACE, uh, which she joined in June of 2016. She currently serves as the Assistant Vice President of Professional Learning. And in that particular role, she oversees the council's flagship professional development program, the ACE Fellows Program, which has got a reputation for being a stellar and must-have sort of set of experiences and credentials uh, if you're going to go into higher ed leadership in this country. Uh, She has been with uh, ACE, as I mentioned, since 2016, and she's also helping with the Innovative Online Learning Community Program and platform, uh, ACE Engage. Uh, She was most recently Provost and President for Academic Affairs and Enrollment Management at Miramont University. And prior to that, she held a variety of positions at McDaniel McDaniel College, rather. So welcome, it's an honor to have you both here and uh, particularly on a Monday right after the holiday. Welcome, welcome. Great to be here, Kathy, thanks. Thanks for having us. Certainly, certainly. We've been talking a lot in the last few episodes that we've recorded with uh, leaders who are thinking about leadership from a new perspective. One of the things I want to dive into a little bit today is uh, specifically how academic leadership can find the resources and find the information they need to be effective and impactful and to execute on the academic missions of their institution. Uh, particularly in in this age of information when we have so much uh, at our fingertips that it's sometimes difficult to know where to begin. Uh, But before we get to that, I want to hear some perspective from both of you, given um, the years and years and varied experiences you've had in in academic leadership on uh, what you think the most uh, important sorts of skills are, particularly and I hate to use the term post-pandemic world because it's so overused and I think Maybe we want to quit defining everything by by the pandemic. Uh, Hopefully we're nearing a point where we can start to begin to define things outside of the pandemic. But I'm really curious. I think we saw higher education institutions really respond fairly agilely and fairly quickly and fairly well to the crisis presented by the pandemic. But I'm wondering, as you think about sort of the 2020s going forward and what may be on the horizon, what sorts of skills you think are going to be most important for academic leadership to uh, hone or to, to develop as they, um, as they prepare to lead in, in this new age or next age? 
I think, you know, I'll start, Kathy, with, with talking about the work that, that ACE has done on shared equity leadership. Um, and I think there are sort of, that is a critical set of skills and practices and values that um, are important both because the, the job of leadership really needs to be distributed there it needs to be distributed because we need more people at the table we need to hear their voices um, and we need to have their creative and um, their creative juices and their expertise um, it also needs to be shared I, I think because if we really want higher education to serve all students well, um, then we need to have um, more more hands doing the work um, and and being involved in that. And so I think the shared element of, of that is is really important. And I would say the equity piece is equally important. And so our leaders really need to be, I would say, laser focused on equity um on their campuses um i think if there's one thing one of the things that we've seen it, with the pandemic was that inequities that maybe we already knew were there were both laid bare um, and exaggerated um, by the pandemic and so i think our leaders need to be sort of laser focused on addressing those issues um, and and i just i feel really uh certain that 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 means not doing it all themselves it means bringing a lot of people to the table um, and a lot of perspectives to solve those issues if i can if i kathy if i can just um, piggyback on what sherry has said a couple 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 of things first i want to reinforce the centrality of equity and i think that as we think about it at ace we think about it both as a goal that we need a more diverse set of leaders in higher education uh, and we need to focus on, on equity and inclusion in bringing uh, those voices to the table. That's the goal part. The means part is that I think one of the things that we have learned over the pandemic, and we, we found this out in a couple of surveys that we did, is that one of the first things that changed during the pandemic is that presidents found themselves bringing more people to the table to make decisions. Why? Because the decisions that they were making, think about, uh, do we uh, keep school open or close it? And how many different subject matter experts do you need to be able to make that decision? This is not a president and provost decision. This is a president and a provost and a facilities and a dining services and a athletics. And every, you know, so, so we're coming to understand that decision-making in these times of change really need to be more broadly distributed. And that's the means part is that in that you need different voices from representing not only different parts of the community, but different backgrounds, different perspectives to be able to come up with the right mix. So I wanna double down on equity as both an end and as a means of making decisions going forward. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And thank you for those comments. Uh, first, let me just say that, again, your ACE, ACE Fellows Program um, probably done as much for this particular goal as any sort of tangible single program that can be pointed to in this country. I mean, when we look at, when I see and, and talk to leadership, so many of them who particularly are coming out of diverse backgrounds and who are, you know, having a seat 
at the head of the table uh, are coming out of the fellows program. And uh, it's just kind of remarkable to see the consistency and you can almost identify someone um, when you're speaking to them and make a, a, an educated guess or a good guess usually that they've in fact come out of the program. So um, I think you guys are doing much already around the school and, and certainly providing um, some means and we'll get into means further in just a moment. Are there other sorts of skills? And this makes perfect sense. I mean, I think one of the things that you're very much alluding to is the complexity of the world we live in, right? So certainly there's been a history of um, inequity, but there's also this new and burgeoning and exponential complexity and having many voices at the table. And the example you gave, Ted, was fantastic about how do you how do you decide what to do in a crisis? You know, no longer can it be two or three people at the table. There are so many so many voices who need to be heard because of the the, the broad impact that uh, a crisis like the pandemic had. Are there other things in addition to this very very important um, sort of shared equity leadership skill set that you would identify as being absolutely vital to be successful in the new age or in this? Um, kind of coming time of even greater complexity that we expect to expect to happen. I guess one thing I would add is that, you know, there is a need for sort of agility and iteration, you know, that that we really need to be able to make decisions with the information we have um, and then adapt as as we get get more information or as things change. So I think finding ways to create environments where people are comfortable with that kind of agility and, and iteration is 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 another important piece. Let me let me take a step back. Uh, Sherry's exactly right. Uh, one of our most um, sought after uh, professional development programs done through the Engage platform, Kathy, that you mentioned earlier is one on agile administrators. Uh, and, and there is a, mm -hmm. a, a big appetite. And I think we administrators across the board are understanding the need for uh, agility. And let me try to put that into some historical, micro-historical context. Back when I was trying to learn how to be a college president, and Sherry, I don't know if this is true for you, um, you know, we, we, we went through the sort of the Harvard Business School thing about first you have the vision and mission, uh, then you have the strategy, then you have the tactics. And back in the day, president's attention was drawn really to the first two segments, to the mission, vision, strategy part. And then it was kind of a, all right, then all of the people around me will take care of the tactics and, and I can get back to fundraising. I think what, what, what Sherry's referring to is, is that we've actually shifted the whole ball game uh, to the right. We've shifted the ball game to somewhere between strategy and tactics. Um, and, and that's not to say that mission isn't important, but I think with this, uh, with the kind of, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about this later, I'm sure. But I think the key for administrators is to say, okay, let's just leave the mission and the vision thing alone for a while because we've got so much going on on the ground all the time that we need to we need to try stuff, we need to learn, we need to change. And that lives somewhere between strategy and tactics. And I think that that's a, that's a new place uh, for um, presidents and provosts and other, other university leaders to be. But it's, it's the place where action happens. It's the place where decisions are made and if done in the right way, 
they will impact uh, back on, you know, do we have the right vision for the institution going forward? Um, but for now, somewhere between strategy and tactics is where the game is being played. I'm struck, Ted, thank you for that and, and share you too. I'm struck by how what you've just suggested, this place between strategy and tactics is so dependent on what the first sort of objective was or the first skill set that you mentioned, both of you, which is this you know, shared equity leadership, um, this um, goal of bringing many voices to the table for representation and to solve very complex issues. And it seems to me that these really go hand in hand if you're going to be trying to make determinations about strategy and tactics and execute on strategy and tactics, you're certainly not going to be able to do that easily um, from one office or um, even uh, with a handful of administrators. So I think those really um, tie nicely together. Before we move on to sort of the more practical sort of deeper dive into means, to use your language, uh, Ted, uh, are there other sorts of skills or, or uh, skill sets or goals for skill sets that administrators ought to be really paying attention to right now? I guess one of the things I would add is relationship orientation and and authenticity. This this the the process that we've talked about of iteration and solving really complicated problems is is not easy and the only way it works is if everybody shows up to the table and and can really really be there um, and be valued and understand their strengths and their weaknesses so i think a, a lot of what we need to be helping leaders with is is that self-discovery that personal journey the how do how do i know who I am and what what really anchors me um, mm -hmm. because it is fundamentally about being a community and and a community that is that is working together. Really strikes me that in any enterprise and particularly I think in higher education and this is one of the problems our company tries to solve is that you know if anyone's going to be successful in this or any organization is going to be successful or any mission is going to be accomplished it's going to be because every resource is leveraged to to that end or to that goal and you know we can no longer afford it seems in higher education and like i said in other enterprises as well to leave some voices out or to not have sort of all hands on deck it's um the world's problems change very quickly. They um, require a lot of agility, but they're also going to require, I think, a lot of really smart, hardworking people doing really, really good hard work. And so I think that, um, again, what you've all been saying around um, having having the right people at the table um, is going to be key um, in building the cultures uh, that are going to be able to execute on those strategy and tactics. And Again, you know, we can't afford to waste <laughs> waste anybody's, um, re, you know, the resource that comes out of anyone or the creativity or the insights or the um, or the hard work that comes from them as well. So I think it's going to take everybody. It's going to take the whole team to uh, to accomplish uh, what schools are going to need to accomplish in the future, what what is uh, set out by their goals and their missions. If we can, then I'd love to jump a little bit now into the second set of questions, which is really around 
you know, based on these skill sets, which I think we identified are fairly integrated and, and uh, interrelated, what are some ways in which leaders can find the resources they need to develop and hone these skills? But also, I'm struck again by um, what seems to be the the issue of our age, which is, you know, too much information, too much information that can't be discerned, knowing what's credible and what's not. Um, And this is something that I think uh, maybe those of us of an older generation want to believe that we've mastered in terms of our, our ability to, to, uh, to be able to make good decisions about the discernibility and the truthfulness and veracity of certain information. But I think we're all um, sort of in a, in a very puzzling time and, and need to all be asking ourselves questions about where we find uh, trustworthy information and resources. And so for that, for that higher ed leader who, you know, maybe recognizes everything that you've said thus far, how do they, how do they find um, what they need and how do they, find the trusted sort of resources and information that they need? The quickest answer is get very familiar with ACE Engage and the ACE website. And, and I, I, I say that only a part of my tongue in my cheek. Uh, you know, I think it's one of, we see that as a one, of, one of our jobs uh, and we take it very seriously. And at a couple of different levels and Kathy, you and I've worked together for years. So, you know, you know, all of what I'm about to say, but, you know, whether it's, trying to filter everything that's going on in Congress and the White House and the uh, agencies into useful, usable information for institutional leaders. That's one thing that we try to do. We try to be a trusted source of knowledge about what's going on and how best to take advantage of that. And then in Sherry's bailiwick, really trying to, to take a lot of information about really critical issues like diversity, equity, and inclusion, or internationalization of our campuses or student success in general, and trying to distill the vast research literature, which is where we have our most confidence, and some of the sort of more popular, hey, maybe there's something here, uh, best practices, and Mm -hmm. distill that into professional programming uh, that, that institutional leaders, and not just presidents, but provosts and deans and department chairs can take advantage of then what we depend upon is a feedback loop where the people who have been working with us then say to each other first and then to us, hey, we tried that, uh, sort of worked, but we tweaked it this way. It's kind of like the um, a recipe blog, right? Mm-hmm. So you got the recipe and then you have all of these people who said, well, you know, I didn't use butter, I used cream, I didn't do mm-hmm. uh, that. And, and, and we really, uh, we treasure that because we think that that's the way the field learns. Yeah, Kathleen, I, I would add the other thing we're trying to do is is give people the opportunity to learn together. So, you know, in in some of these spaces where there's so much uncertainty, we're not even sure who has the answers yet. And so in groups that we're calling learning circles, we're bringing people together around a common problem and they they come together to, to say, well, this is the problem we need to solve. Where might we find good resources? Who might we want to talk to? Um, and then what we hope as a result of that is, is they create some of that new knowledge that people will then benefit from. So I think we're, we're also trying to create a space where we can sort of um, bolster the confidence 
of higher education leaders to, to solve their problems together. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that, that I found we weren't doing all that well when I was on a campus, we were solving our problems on mm -hmm. our campus. Mm -hmm. And while we, we often looked to other campuses to say, well, what are they doing, particularly the places we thought were a little better than we were, um, <laughs> I think it's, it's just, it, it's really important for us to create a space to say, we're better off doing this together um, and we can learn together and share the solutions that we have. That's great. I'm curious if you could speak specifically about, I know of programs that you all have that speak directly to aspiring leadership. And certainly I think the conference and um, kind of your president's councils and those sorts of things are fairly well known across the country among leadership. How do you find and how do you reach that group that's sort of in neither of those two places, right? I'm not an aspiring president. I'm not, you know, I'm going to, I'm probably going to be a dean or a program chair. And that's the, that's the highest level I'm comfortable or that that's, you know, I don't have, I'm not a complete sadist. I'm not going to go for the presidency or for the, you know, for the, for the provost position. How do you, how do you find and how do you make your resources available to, and how are you kind of reaching that, that group that's, you know, outside of the two that come to mind when we think of ACE? Well, Kathy, I, I would say one good example of how, how we're doing that is, is just by the work that we're doing with the women's mm -hmm. networks. You know, that the, those are examples of leaders, women leaders within a state who come together to support each other and to thrive. And they frequently come to us then for resources and expertise and, and information. And, and we're actually working with them at this point to try to figure out how to do a better, better job of sharing what they're doing with each other so that we can sort of maximize the, the impact of their work. Um, but, I, but I think that's, that's one place when you look at the women in any given state network, you've got everything from, mm -hmm. you know, entry level student affairs professionals to college and university presidents, right. and and they are um, they're they're really intent on sort of thinking about and providing resources to folks at all of those different stages. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think it's sort of a beautiful organic thing that happens in those networks as they bring the youngers up and and so forth. But Ted, you were going to say something. Oh, I was just going to say I think you you've um, and thank you for for um, your confidence in the fellows program. Uh, we believe in it as well. You know, the the fellows, um, although some of them may think that they magically leave the fellows program and appear in a president's office, you know, they 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 go back to work and and they are also a really important fulcrum. For this kind of development mm -hmm. in in tiers of leadership, uh, where again people may not be, be aspiring, but you know if they're adjacent, uh, sitting next to a, a fellow, fellow or former fellow, you know they will become familiar with the resources. The other secret weapon we have uh, at ACD, and we're very very grateful for it, is the um, Washington Higher Education Secretariat, which is a group of uh, associations who um, I, they're, they're, they're varied and, and numerous, but the, the typical slice that they take is a job-alike slice. So these are the registrars. 
These are the admissions folks. These are the student affairs officers. These are the chief diversity officers. And so we, we work with those uh, job-alike associations to help make sure that their professional development is aligned with ours and ours with theirs mm -hmm. so that we're singing from the same song sheet, sharing resources, and building uh, this network of informed professionals across the, across the field. I think you've got guys have done a great job. And I think the, you know, one of the things that I would love to encourage listeners to do is to uh, check out the, uh, the platform, the engage platform, because I think it's, it's um, easy to use. And, you know, as I've needed resources, it's a go-to place where I know, you know, I'm going to get to your point a moment ago, um, you know, cutting edge research and scholarship on topics, maybe not what's trending in some of the more popular websites or that's being distributed through social media, but we're going to, you know, you're going to see solid, credible information, which um, again, I think is invaluable in this day uh, and time that we live in, because you can find all the information you want. It's, you know, making sure you can trust the information that you have. I wanted to dive into a second example, and it's um, mostly because I, just finished reading a book and I actually got to spend about 90 minutes with um, our Senator in Indiana. And he's, he co-sponsored a, a bill that is going to, I don't know what's happened to, uh, since Thanksgiving on it. So last I saw last Wednesday and Ted, you may know more than me, they were going into committee with this bill. This is a bill that's going to provide a lot of R and D resources for emergent technologies. And they're very much looking to colleges and universities and national science organizations to be the distributors of these resources. There's a whole lot of names in which uh, this bill is being identified. I think it was originally uh, Todd Young had it uh, identified as something like, um, now I've forgotten what the name was that he was referring to. Uh, he used to refer to it, but it was, it's something, uh, New Frontiers or something like that. And, and then it was sort of an uh, anti-China bill or, you know, competition with China bill. I'm not sure where they've landed in terms of name, but it struck me in first having this conversation with Senator Young and learning about the extent of the resources and how much they were really counting the legislators were on the distribution of those resources happening through research institutions and, and that research being done by well-granted or, or well-supported uh, scholars, it was it was surprising to hear and then also really got my wheels spinning and, and made me start to think as somebody who's um, in Northwest Indiana and who comes from a very tuition-driven school, how do schools, you know, when these sorts of things are happening that are, you know, beyond sort of best administrative practices, but that are, you know, big opportunities, but that are also complex, how does ACE help inform colleges and universities about opportunities like this, not just from a policy perspective, but from a, you know, from a, an economic perspective, from a, a growth perspective, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, so first of all, to, to bring, bring listeners up to date, uh, the bill is now in, in conference between the House and the Senate. So it's moving, moving forward. And uh, even though you asked me not to talk about policy, I will for just a second. Uh, so um, we do, as I mentioned earlier, a, a ton of policy work. It's uh, one of the one of the things we're proudest of, and we think adds most value to the field. And that's an open book 
uh, quite literally. And so anyone interested in any of the bills that we cover can find information on them on our website. And that's really a first step, uh, including including the bill that you mentioned. And while we, we you know we're we're in uh, wild support of more research opportunities for uh, American higher education, um, you know, like everything, nothing is perfect. Uh, this isn't. Um, we're we're worried that some of the leftover pieces from the anti-China version of the bill create security provisions that uh, really. Uh, conspire against sort of open academic uh, research and, and freedom okay. of expression. So, you know, there's there's the good and the bad. And if you want to read all about it, it's on on our website. Um, but that said, that that really is the point of entry for institutions that are looking for uh, opportunities for funding. And while we don't do uh, the kind of professional development that we used to do when I was in the in the education department, where we would hold open webinars to talk to people about how exactly the competition is going to work. And we don't do that, but we do refer institutions to those webinars that the, that the, very, the relevant agencies do. And that's really where you get your information. You know, that's where you get a sense of how the, uh, how the applications are going to be scored, uh, what, the, what the top priorities are of, of a different grant program, program. And as your listeners know, once a bill is passed, then the there are agencies who are responsible for putting together the, uh, in, in some cases, regulations. In this case, the opportunities for grant funding, and that's that's where the action that's where the action happens. So, in addition to the bill that, that you're, you mentioned, uh, there are some significant new opportunities for institutions in non-traditional places. So, we typically look at at education, look a little bit at labor. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, we'll look at the science agencies. Uh, and the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of Health. Commerce, as it turns out, uh, has a, a robust set of initiatives that are looking for institutions that are working with community organizations to build pipelines between higher education and the world of work for students. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing that we, we've got our, uh, more than our finger to the wind, we've got, you know, our, our hands in and we're working with agencies. Those are the kinds of things that, that um, are available. The information about those is available. And we encourage institutions to take advantage. I'm going to say two other things um, before I turn it over to, to Sherry for any additional, she can correct anything that I've said that's wrong. There are two things uh, that I would say about the current moment. One is that despite I think, what we've all worried about, about kind of a negative narrative about higher education, over the last several years. Mm -hmm. COVID really has helped people, particularly those in Congress, understand the importance of research. Uh, we wouldn't have a vaccine, but for inquiry-based, curiosity-based research in the biological sciences, we just wouldn't have it. Mm -hmm. uh, it wouldn't have gone through the kind of testing that it did without an incredible research investment in combinatorics and other computer science fields that enabled us to do the modeling that we needed to do. People are getting that, and they're understanding it. And so this is, if you, if you sort of step way back, I think this is going to be a golden age of research and a golden age for researchers and for our research community. The other thing that I'll say is that Congress recognizes that it's very, it would be very easy to create a research program in which uh, the big kids scoop up all the cheese. 
Um, and you know, while there's incredible expertise in the R1 research community, there is also incredible research strength and growing research strength in the ASCU institutions, the state colleges and universities, HBCUs, um, MSIs of every different variety, uh, tribal colleges. And so many of the research programs that are being initiated this round in Congress uh, have pieces of them that are geared towards supporting partnerships between institutions that have well-developed research infrastructure and those that don't, uh, research initiatives that are aimed specifically at building up the research infrastructure of under-resourced institutions, and uh, research uh, that is earmarked toward supporting projects that serve low-income uh, communities. And that's in particular in areas of climate change and climate resiliency. So anyway, it's good. It's all good news on the research front. Like everything else, we'd love it to be even more, but I think that there are unprecedented opportunities for your listeners to be a part of this. Thanks so much for that. And boy, I certainly got an education about some opportunities because I was going to make the false assumption that a lot of these monies were going to be earmarked for the schools that have traditionally done research and development in this country, you know, for those those big R1 schools. But it's it's wonderful. And it really goes to what you all said at the beginning of the conversation as well about, you know, we need a lot of voices at the table. We need a lot of perspectives to solve the problems we're going to need to solve. As you think about opportunities that your members or conference attendees or people who are engaging with your information platform, uh, the Engage Network, who really um, are looking for how to situate themselves in this golden age of research that you're talking about, what sorts of resources might they find to help help them approximate or help them set goals or even understand sort of where they fit in this golden age? Because again, I think it makes perfect sense to an R1 institution where they fit, um, but where does a community college fit? Where does a tuition-driven school, where does a tribal college? Do you all help their leadership kind of begin to imagine their place in, in this uh, golden age of, of research and development? So one of the uh, one of the things that we that uh, Sherry and her team and uh, have have been uh, building over the last several years are uh, labs where institutions come together. It's a the um, learning circles that that Sherry mentioned earlier are an outgrowth of this, but the idea is the same. What kinds of problems are institutions looking to really solve, really dig into, really gain resources so that they can get a better foothold? And um, in those labs, this is a big part of the discussion. How can we generate resources from philanthropic sources, from uh, revenue uh, uh, generation of our own, uh, from federal and state grants? How can we generate resources that will help us with X? And so in some cases, X is internationalizing the, the uh, experience of students. And we find that this is particularly important to tuition-driven institutions serving low-income students. Uh, those are students whose families don't take vacations to Paris. Uh, those are families who still need to have a, a sense of where they are and where we are and where their institutions are in the global environment. So that's one. Uh, recently, we've launched one that's a broad student success plan 
looking at the varieties of different ways institutions have tackled, uh, tackled student success. And there we're looking uh, uh, to help institutions get money for proven practices, uh, such as um, better advising, short-term loans, for small short-term loans to help students fix their radiators so they can actually get to class in rural, rural communities, to research on what really makes for a successful student experience, particularly for low-income students of color. So those are the, that's, we, do, we do it on a topic-by-topic -topic basis mm -hmm. because we think that that not only uh, concentrates the mind, but as Sherry said earlier, creates a, a learning community where people are saying, hey, have you tried this? Hey, have you thought about that? Mm -hmm. Did you see this grant? Did you see it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. So it's more organic, yeah. Yep. Sherry, did you wanna say something? I, I think, you know, one of the things that we find so valuable about those experiences is because we are a cross-sector uh, association, then uh, in those labs, in those learning circles, we have community college folks with R1s, with small privates, with MSIs. And so we have found that people are, are hungry to collaborate across, uh, across those sectors um, and across functional roles. So, you know, when, when Ted mentioned earlier that we, you know, we also count on our same job uh, associations to, to help folks in, in their particular roles, we have also found that many of our um, constituents want to be in the room with people in different roles um, mm -hmm. because it helps them to think through those problems and, and get those different perspectives. So you have sort of both approaches. You have the more personal role-based, but you also have the topical where you're bringing lots of stakeholders to the table and hearing technicians talk about this and administrators and students and yeah, very good. That's, that's terrific. Related to this idea of kind of the means or the ways in which academic leadership access resources through ACE that they can be assured are credible. I'm wondering about other sorts of leadership programming that you may have available that really are educating, not just on best practices and not just providing information and maybe not even, you know, maybe even going beyond what we just spoke of, which is sort of approximating your place in, in a bigger picture. I, I think I shared in the notes that I sent to you that I, I'm haunted because I just finished reading Eric Schmidt's book. <laughs> so as a, as a grandma of one now, and just kind of imagining this world that we're entering into, it's kind of taken up probably too much of my thinking time, but I keep thinking about it in the context of higher education and my own experience has been, you know, very much of, we've gotten more agile as a, as an industry, I think. Um, and I think, you know, where we started was kudos that we have, I think responded as an industry very well to the, to the COVID crisis. And, and certainly nobody wants the pendulum to swing too far, uh, least of all me to, to where we're, you know, so proactive that we're not, aware of long-term unintended consequences. But how are you thinking about, how are you talking about, I'm curious, even in your fellows program, how are you helping to educate or inform future or current leaders about 
the just very rapidly changing world that we're in and the, and the one that seems as if it's going to be even more rapidly changing and evolving how can how can you help those leaders maybe not see specifically what's on the horizon but generally what's on the horizon and how do you how do you help them prepare or think about leading in you know leading in that sort of time yeah i it i mean it's a really tough question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think we try to do some combination of both, right? We at ACE try to help with looking around the corner and and with our our research and and you know our research team doing those kinds of things about what are the trends and how do we how do we identify those. But then it's I think it goes back to leadership as a process more so than an individual. And so it, it goes back to helping in the fellows program, for example, you know, helping them think through and understand how they how they show up as a leader, think through how they how they need to lead a team and bring a group of people together to solve a problem. Because we we can't be sure what the next problem will be. Um, we can be sure that there will be a next problem. And so if we've developed people who have the muscles of, of transformation and analysis and relationship, I think they are well prepared to do that. No, I, I just, I'd add, I think Sherry's is exactly right. And it is, it's a challenge and it's an ongoing challenge. And I think that um, I'll, I'll say a couple things that I hope are connected. You know, one, I, I have great confidence in, that, in higher education worldwide. I was just on a call this morning with a group of colleagues from literally everywhere from China and Thailand uh, to, uh, to Eastern Europe and all the way around the globe. And, uh, you know, we're all grappling with this. It's, it really is the big issue. And I think at the core of the, of the field's answer to the question, is um, as, as much as we are needed for instrumental advances today, we're needed for long-term consideration of options in the future. Mm-hmm. And that's really where uh, universities, not just in the last 50 years, but in the last 500, have made their bread and butter. And what I worry most is that that baby will be thrown out with the bathwater of instrumental progress. And so we try very hard to remind our um, leaders in training and our leaders that they are not only um, you know, looking for what's next and what's important, but they're stewards of a set of intellectual traditions um, that really are at the core of uh, civilization as we know it, uh, whether that's East, West, North, or South, and that we need to hold on to that. And I guess the, the other thing that I would, I would say about that is that I don't think that we um, have the hubris, much less the wisdom, to be able to say, go there, uh, because that's where, as Wayne Gretzky said in the overused phrase, that's where the puck is going to be. But I think we do have a sense of of what the indicators are that our leaders should be looking at as they make those decisions based on their own mission uh, and, and their institutional history. So who are our students? What do our students want? Where is the intellectual fabric of the discipline moving and changing? All of these are things that, that I think we need to encourage our institutions to look at and our leaders to be mindful of as they make those momentous decisions about 
where to stick their resources and where to aim this strategy and tactics uh, frame that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, that's that's a great perspective. I mean, I think ideally we strike the balance, right? Academic leaders, political leaders, <laughs> uh, individuals, right? I mean, I, I'm going to plug Eric Schmidt's book, even though it's haunted me, but um, I mean, it's, it's just very good. And, and Henry Kissinger co-wrote it with him and you know, the, the, the thesis is basically helping to evaluate how we might do things differently than we did sort of the digital revolution. And what are those unintended consequences? What are the things that if we just, you know, go full throttle toward, you know, progress or development or technology, you know, what, what might be the unintended consequences? What might we miss? And so, you know, it's really a, a call to step back and say, this is where we're likely going as it relates to technology and certainly as it relates to emergent technologies like AI and, you know, what ought we be thinking about? And to me, it seems like this is the perfect place for higher education leaders to be bringing a voice and a perspective, particularly when the technologists are asking for the voice. <laughs> um, I think it's, um, you know, it's something that is going to be really, really important. And I have to tell you, it's really comforting to know that so many education leaders across the world are having these same sorts of thoughts and considerations. I think um, maybe we are going to all sort of end up holding hands and working together, <laughs> which should be, should be lovely. Can I pick up on that? Because I think it's 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 really an mm -hmm. important insight, and we, it, you capture it well. I think that in addition to what individual universities can do, Universities uh, in even the most tumultuous of political times can create linkages across cultures, communities, and, and countries, uh, person to person, researcher to researcher. This is one of the reasons why internationalization keeps coming up in, in our conversation at ACE, because we believe it's one of the places in which we can build uh, the strength of international collaboration that can withstand the buffeting of whatever the political issues of the day may be. We, I think we're in that place. And so creating institution to institution, system to system linkages is really important right now. Yeah. I mean, I've even thought of that in the context of faculty. Um, when you talk about scholarship and you talk about, you know, faculty's identification with their institution, well, they're primary historically at you know, if they're if they're on a tenure track or tenured, I mean, their their primary identification is with scholars in their field, and there may be a handful of those across the world that are looking at the same sort of problems and issues. And and then there's secondarily or third, you know, third sort of point of reference in terms of identification uh, with community is you know sometimes the institution. And so you know, looking at whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but certainly I think those those relationships are already there uh, at the scholarship level in an international way. And, you know, maybe, maybe the solution or maybe the answer is to, is to build on those sorts of relationships that are happening more, as you say, in a one-to-one -one context. And we certainly have, uh, we have a program that's connecting faculty as teachers across disciplines as well. And mm -hmm. so that's another place where, again, faculty identify with their 
their discipline mm -hmm. and can create those connections with another faculty member in another country teaching a, a similar course or a, uh, on a similar topic. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, before we close, and, and thank you so much for this. This was, I think this is going to be a really rich conversation full of very practical sorts of insights and resources and, and specific sort of credible places that, that listeners can go to and find information. Before we end, though, I wanted to see if we could conclude uh, with sort of end of year, what can we celebrate about the, the past year as uh, higher education institutions, as higher education leadership, as policymakers and an organization that supports higher education institutions. What do you think schools, leaders, higher education in general can celebrate at the end of this year? And then what do we need to be looking at most closely in terms of priorities and goals for 2022? So Sherry, do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah, I would say, you know, the thing I, one of the things I think they can celebrate is that they were able to sort of sustain their communities and in spite of a lot of barriers, you know, bring their communities of students and faculty and staff together and, and have that sense of common purpose and common bonds, which I, I think is really worth celebrating there. I would say the thing that I think we, one of the things that I think we need to spend the most attention time attending to in next year is the mental health crisis. Um, people can't do their work well if they are depressed or anxious or under a tremendous amount of stress. And I, that includes faculty and students and staff. And I, I think that we just, we keep hearing that as a major concern. And I think we've got to find ways to come together and, and maybe really start to say, we've got to not only treat the symptoms, but we've got to come together to figure out what's really going on to create those problems. But I just think that's one thing we really need to put on the horizon. Thanks for that. Well, I hope um, when I'm going to plug your conference this spring, when we come to the conference, uh, we'll have all kinds of uh, sessions to learn more about, you know, how we might promote better mental health among our colleagues and institutions and our organizations. So look forward to that. Ted, what do you think? What, what what can we celebrate, and what do we need to be paying really close attention to in 2022? Yeah, I'll 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 pick up pick up right where the two of you were. I I, I think we should celebrate amidst all of this chaos. I think we should celebrate the fundamental humanity of our institutions. Hmm. You know, we we were surprised when we did surveys monthly for a while, and then every other month of leaders. And, and I, frankly, we were surprised that the durability of president's concern for mental health. And not only were they worried about it, but they did things about it. And the stories that we get of you know, individual acts of kindness and humanity of you know, allowing, uh, you know, buying computer equipment, sort of like, yeah, we'll figure it out later, whether that's at a personal level or an institutional level, really understanding in new ways the uh, struggles of students to get this education, I, I think it's been a it's been a marvelous uh, um, learning, and the reaction I think has been entirely positive. So I, I I just feel really good about the about the humanity of our institutions. But, but what do we what should we look at? We haven't talked about it much yet, um, but I think one of the things that's happened underneath all of the chaos has been shifting um, a real focus of attention 
on the connection or lack thereof between higher education and the world of work. And I think as we think about um, the, the coming year, I, I don't think that, that we can, I, I think that every minute we spend thinking about that from an institutional perspective and from a system perspective is, is a moment that will be well spent because students are increasingly concerned about it and vocal about it. Families have always been and certainly are. Uh, we're hearing more and more from state legislators, governors, members of Congress, and employers that they need there to be a, a, a tighter bond. So I think that that's really going to be one of the things that uh, is going to inform 2022. That's fantastic. Thanks so much both for sharing your perspectives, for helping us get to know ACE and the resources that you all offer as a bulwark of higher education. You want to tell us when your conferences plug the date for us? You'd think we'd, you'd think we'd both have this tattoo done for <laughs> I'm sorry, I put you on the spot. I hate when people do that to me. <laughs> six and March. seven, I think. March yeah. six and seven. I think we're going to San Diego, if I remember right. We're going to yeah. San Diego and we're going to see everybody there. Yeah, well, we will definitely in the program notes, we will include the uh, the date of the it, conference. It is the 6th and the 7th of March in San Very Diego. Good. Yeah, Bring your flip flops and your sunglasses. That's right. Right. And we'll all be prepared to learn lots about not only ACE and the resources you have, but uh, maybe around this topic that you've heard is a pressing topic of mental health at institutions and among um faculty and students and administrators. So we'll look forward to that. Thanks again so much. This was uh, just Thank wonderful. You. Appreciate your perspectives and your leadership and your policy work and uh, all of the very credible information that you have available to academic leaders and to faculty, staff and other sorts of administrators. So thank you. Thank you for your service to higher education and, and thanks for spending some time with us today. So we're going to conclude now. This will be uh, this is the end of our leadership series uh, on the ACE. I'm sorry, on the uh, APL <laughs> uh, Next Ed Mini Pod. Uh, you can find us on your favorite podcast catcher, and uh, we will look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks so much. Bye bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to today's guest, and thank you to you, our listeners. You can find out more about our guest in the show notes. We hope the APL Next Ed Minipod is a helpful resource to you and your teams. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your colleagues. The APL Next Ed Minipod is brought to you by APL Next Ed, the leading academic operations platform helping academic teams connect and collaborate in one place. To learn more about how APL Next Ed is helping schools streamline academic operations, visit aplnexted.com.